Welcome to the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast, where we untangle the past, rewrite the present, and reclaim our future. I am your host, Tammy Vincent, and together we will break free from old patterns, heal wounds, and create new narratives. Are you ready to transform the effects of your dysfunctional past into your superpowers? Are you excited to get back in touch with your true authentic self? If so, then hit subscribe and join me weekly on the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast. Here we will learn from experts as well as experienced thrivers how to turn our trials into smiles while living our most authentic and joyful lives. Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to have you here. Today we have with us a special guest. We have Eddie or Harris Eddie Hill, identifying as they, them, is an out and proud non-binary podcaster, best-selling author, coach, and founder of the Center for Childhood Trauma Healing. This is a platform dedicated to supporting neurodivergent, queer, or highly empathic adults to overcome their childhood trauma and begin to thrive. She was, they were short listed for the Positive Impact and Sustainability Speaker of the Year at the Speaker Awards. Harris is passionate about demystifying healing and helping people connect to their own ability to heal. Clients take back their power from a medical system that doesn't offer tangible solutions and doesn't always educate clients on their ability to heal. Harris has survived and overcome trauma, unaccepting family members, career or cancer, abusive relationships, physical paralysis, and mental health challenges yet has found a way to emotional freedom and is now passing that power forward. Wow. Welcome. You have done a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I've packed it in. <laughs> into the. Yes, you sure have. So tell us a little bit more about your story. I mean, it seems like you have gone through absolutely everything you could possibly have had as far as a challenge. Give us just a little bit bigger of a picture. Okay, cool. So... <sighs> Like a lot of folks, I, I had um, regular PTSD and that was really driving me. I, I had that for like nearly 20 years. It happened when I was a child. I won't go into like graphic detail for those who need the information and don't want to be triggered. But um, the headline was that I was sexually assaulted when I was a child. Um, and unfortunately, it happened again in my teens and then again in my 20s. I'm in my mid 30s now. And the PTSD I had from that was so overwhelming that I went and I asked for help. I'm, I'm a very can-do person. I don't like to be told that I can't do something. And um, I've definitely got a bit, you know, I'm a very stubborn person and don't like to be told what to do. So when I kept going around like doctors, you know, psychiatrists or whatever and saying, what can I do about this? And they were like, do you, do you want to talk about it? I was like, I don't have a problem talking about it, you know. I know that what happened wasn't my fault. I haven't internalized any of that, but I have PTSD. I have PTSD. What can we do about it? And they were like, meds? I was like, no, no. And they're like, what about mindfulness? And I was like, you're not hearing me. I, I need, there must be a solution. And they were like, just completely total blank faces. And it just so happened that I came across um, a counselor therapist who who's local to me. And um, I was having issues with with other stuff and she knew me professionally. And she said, do you want to get rid of your PTSD? And I was like, you can do that. She's like, yeah, it's easy. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, and it was 
you know, at that point, I didn't care. I didn't care if she was like, you need to dance around naked in the rain and like, you know, I don't know, eat 50 tomatoes. I don't know. I was like, I don't care. <laughs> I'll, I'll give anything a go. Um, so I didn't expect it to work. But at the same time, I was totally surrendered. I was like, well, all I can do is try. And it was gone in two sessions. And I was so shocked because it was so severe what I had, you know, before now I'd been triggered and locked myself in my car in a supermarket car park and completely in tears and completely triggered and hysterical. Um, I've locked myself in other people's bathrooms before. Like it could, it, it was, it was really very alive in me, very alive. And um, it was just cured. And it, I, since then I've not had a flashback. I don't have an issue talking about it. Um, I don't feel anything about it. It's a fact, it's a memory and it's, but it's not alive in me anymore. And it was so life-changing. I went and trained to go and do something else. Um, I, I went and go and, uh, and trained to, to be an NLP practitioner and timeline therapist. So that's considered still alternative. Eventually it won't be because the more good studies we have, the more we can see that some of it's quite effective, not all of it, but some of it. And um, then I had a little breakdown and I was like, ha, oh, that's really curious. After I had my PTSD treated, I was like, I'm living my best life. This is amazing. Um, and then I had a breakdown. So I was like, oh, I wonder why that happened. I was starting to become more curious rather than upset about it. So I went back to my original therapist who then trained in treating complex trauma. She did an assessment, a very, very lengthy assessment and said, you've got complex trauma as a result of your family and your upbringing. And I was like, okay. So went through that whole, that whole um, process. So much of it was stuff that I'm already trained in. So I was like, oh, I actually do know this. And um, obviously that was also life-changing. And then once I was better, I stabilized a bit. I was like, I think I'm okay. I went and worked for the NHS, which is our national healthcare system uh, service in the UK, and went to go and support people in their GP practices. So supporting them with or anything that they wanted support with. Some people were like, oh, I want to manage my diabetes better. Some people were like, I want to lose weight, but I'm a bit emotionally attached to food. We talked about all sorts of things. And the bottom line under all of it was childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I know this back to front. I'm helping all these people already. I want to specialize and I want to be paid more money. And the NHS were not ready for me to do that. So we parted ways very amicably. And I set up my center this year. Right. And your center is the Center for Childhood Trauma Healing, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting that you said that because I'm sure listeners out there are, first of all, they're probably still stuck on the concept that you said your PTSD was cured in two sessions. So can you tell me about the modality that was used for that? Yeah. I mean, so I just want to preface this by saying that the way that I will recover from PTSD is not the same that somebody else will recover from PTSD. There's two really important factors. One is that the practitioner or the person that you're working with, you really vibe with them. You, you know, you share your values in common, you're, you feel seen. You feel understood, you know, that it's a really safe space where you can completely relax. And the other thing is that the modality suits you and suits the way. So there's lots of different things out there. I wouldn't be the right person for every single person. 
because a lot of the modalities that I use and that worked for me were a lot around visualization, closing your eyes and basically giving your brain the emotional experience it needs to finish or be done with that trauma, to move it forward, to give it the, the ending that your brain needs in order to let go and move on and process what happened. So there are some people who don't have very good visual visualization skills. They, they might experience things in a very different way. Uh, if people are more body centered, they might want to do more somatic work. So it, there's no right or wrong uh, way, but the way that, so I'll give you an example. When I was taken through my healing for my PTSD, my initial treatment, um, what we did is that we went back and we had a conversation with little me the morning after th that first incident, just quiet, just me and them. And the practitioner kind of guided us through me and little me through this really healing conversation, all of the things that needed to happen at the time, but didn't, excuse me. And it was highly emotional. It was very emotionally charged, but it wasn't triggering. So we didn't even have to talk about like what happened. I didn't even have to go into detail. And that's part of my training as well, that you don't want to trigger someone in order to process something. They need to be as emotionally, like their nervous system needs to be as calm as possible. And so I cried a lot. I had a lot of feelings about it, but it wasn't triggering. I felt so much compassion for that little me and what they had to go through. I felt so much relief that finally we were doing this thing and there's all this feeling that was obviously in there and that needed to be let out. And it was just such a special experience. So I cried a lot. I was exhausted. I use, I'm not, I'm not a graceful crier. So there was a lot of <laughs> tissues. Um, but it was incredible. And after that, I went to look at my phone. I saw a headline to do with, you know, sexual assault that normally would have sent me right over the edge instantly. And nothing happened. And ever since nothing has happened. So it's really magical. That is amazing. And I totally agree. What works for you is not going to work for everybody. I think I was just even curious myself because different modalities do work for different people. I am a firm believer as well that a compassionate approach is the way to reach, you know, reach that inner child. I don't believe you ever have to go back and lay somebody down and hypnotize them and make them relive what happened to them because there's no need. You know, something happened to you. It's just dealing with it. And, and like you said, being at peace and, and letting that little you deal with that and, and feel the emotions, but not feel, you don't have to relive it. I think that's, it just seems so barbaric to me. It does. And the thing NLP teaches that every time you practice a feeling, a memory, anything, you strengthen that neural pathway. And that's the opposite of what you want. Because right. you 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 want to be done with that. You want to move forward. I remember that there were times when I was, I think it was after the last time that I was assaulted. That was nine years ago, just over nine years ago now. And um I was going to see the sexual health clinic many times over many months. They were looking after my health, making sure that I hadn't contracted anything. And 
at first I needed that space to feel my feelings but once three months was out of the way and I had done intentionally a lot of feeling a lot of crying I had very intentionally felt my feelings um by the time the three months was gone and I had my life had started to move on it started to change and it wasn't that the PTSD was gone but but that initial sort of processing that does go on naturally in those first few months were then done so then every time I was going back to the clinic after the three months to go and sort of get my health monitored and stuff it started to drag me down Mm. and I didn't want to talk about it anymore I was kind of at a point where I was like I want to move forward now I don't want to be reminded of this all the time right Now, you mentioned, too, and I think a lot of people that have lived in, I don't know, I mean, you had these three horrific things happen to you at different times with just the sexual assault, but it sounds like you've been through so much other stuff, and that's where your complex PTSD comes in. And I swear I check the DSM-5, like, every few months, because I'm like, eventually it's going to pop up in there. It's going to be in there, like, seriously, because... I mean, it's it's kind of like me as a child. It's it's like being at war. And that's the best way people have described it to me is your body is literally at war for those 18 years you're living in that house. And your your hypervigilance never goes away. Your nervous system, like you said, never calms down. And when you're in that agitated state, you can't get to that peaceful state. Hmm. And what do you think the complex PTSD part of it came from for you? Oh, well, I know exactly where it came from. You know, it, it's 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 complex because my family are very funny people. <laughs> it's a nice and, way to put it. <laughs> but no, honestly, we make each other laugh. We make a lot of other people laugh. We're very jovial, very, very funny people, very witty people. And at the same time, growing up, the emotional environment in the house could change at any moment there was alcohol abuse okay what was considered funny one day the next day was punishable um there was a huge amount of pressure to not express any quote-unquote negative feelings there were what there wasn't space for that there was no space for mistakes so if you didn't do well with your work and your schoolwork and stuff, then you would be in big trouble. You would be very harshly treated. I'm the eldest of three, so I had a lot of um, after-school activity. So it wasn't enough for me as a neurodivergent kid, I'm autistic and, and ADHD and have sensory uh, processing disorder. It wasn't enough for me to do a full day at, at school with noisy kids and being ostracized and school lunches that were disgusting (laughs) um I then would you know be expected to perform these extra curricular things after school as well and just it was so much so it was kind of like we don't care how you feel you must perform you must perform and Mm. by the time I was 13 my um one of my grandparents died and it completely rocked the family in a Mm. big big way And I became, for my entire family, including my parents, from that point onwards, the emotional parent. And my parents uh, individually would come to me for uh, marriage advice from that age, uh, would often complain to me about the other. So there's a lot of what we call emotional incest Mm -hmm. there. Um, 
you know, I would be expected to hold space for topics that I wasn't even old enough to have experienced myself. And I would often, you know, if there was drinking and arguing going on, which happened fairly often, I would then be trying to shield my younger siblings from that. Uh, my brother was bored when before I, I turned 12. So there's a big age gap. So I was doing a lot of parenting, not of my only of my sister, who's only two and a bit years younger than me, but also my baby brother at the time. So, so you be, you were completely parentified and just completely you just became the parent you became the role everybody's role model you became everything and like you said at an age where you weren't even old enough to really process what it was you were literally stripped of your complete childhood the whole thing not to mention that I was also heavily criticized constantly so I had this huge amount of responsibility and I was constantly at the receiving end of criticism and high standards and things you know it got to the point when I was about 14 or 15 where I stopped doing a lot of the homework, especially in the subjects that I was already good at, naturally good at. And they would say, you know, you, you're going to have to have a detention to catch up with this homework. And I was like, I don't I don't give a flying monkey's butt. Like, <laughs> I don't give a breath. I've got, right. yeah, I, I've got so much to worry about. And so much is going on at home. Like you're talking about French homework, like vocabulary or something. I don't, I just don't care. You don't understand what's happening. Right. Right. Are, do you have any relationship with your parents now? I live with them currently. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah. So is it, is it better? Are things good now? I think that in my moving on, it has prompted some other people, like some other moving on, but one parent is particularly you know tries really hard and there's been a lot of evolution there and and now the um communication is much more open like it's really getting to a much healthier place it's not I don't think there's necessarily enough input there to make it as good as it could be in that I don't know if any answers outside of our conversations are being sought it's one of the things that I, I kind of ask my clients if they're in a relationship where the other person, they might be doing growth between the two of them, but the other person might not be reading any books, going to therapy, listening to podcasts. The only growth they're doing is when they're talking to their partner. And I think that's a lot of what I'm experiencing now. I don't really know with that parent who's trying hard um, how much outside input there is or seeking um solutions and the other one uh I strongly suspect is a narcissist okay and that just that's a whole nother issue and a whole nother realm of dysfunction in itself yeah. just trying to deal with that having having a narcissist in the in the house yeah um, I'm sure you we talked right before this about like codependent relationships now yes. who would those be with who would you consider those with do you suffer from that right now are you in no, that? no, not now. No, I mean, I, I think part of your the thing is, is that codependency is such an important and, and kind of valid way that we learn to survive our childhood when we're the ones who are capable of empathy, of adapting our behavior and all of that kind of thing. But obviously, as an adult, when you're you don't need that anymore, you're not in danger anymore. Um it becomes maladaptive. It's not, it's not doing a good job for you anymore. So I used to, 
um, in my teens, I started to date and picked some like amazingly horrible people. If it had been a skill to pick the worst people possible, I would have been winning a lot of awards. And um, I think when I got to 25, that's when I had the sort of brush with cancer. Uh, here, when you're 25, you go for your per- your first pap smear smear test. Uh, and 25? Yes. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so I went for the first one. And at the time I was dating, I think my third uh, class, um, empathy deficient person (laughs) and um I got I forgot I'd even had this test done other stuff was going on and you get a letter in the post to say yeah we found something so I was like oh and that week I it was like a light switched on I started taking myself seriously I started to care about what happened to me and I started to look at my then girlfriend at the time. Um, I don't discriminate when I date. It's all the, the soul and the person and stuff. And um, she was my first girlfriend. And so much of it had been a positive experience. But again, she she had an empathy deficiency. I, I suspect she was also a narcissist. And mm. I just started looking at her like, what am I doing? Like, I could lose me. I could lose me. And I'm just within I think two or three days I said I can't do this anymore it's over Mm. and I think that was one of the big cures for my codependency was that I couldn't I could no longer look at other people and their needs and their wants and their desires and their their feelings and think well that's definitely more important than anything I've got to say or how I feel and so I hope for a lot of the people that I'm helping and a lot of people with childhood trauma do suffer from so, some codependency. I just hope it's not going to take cancer for them to snap out of it. I was going to say it's that's a harsh wake up call. I mean, everybody kind of has their aha moment like, OK, this is where the moment in my life, that defining moment that you're like, OK, I got to change. Something's got to give. And you're right. You know, you don't want it to be when you're 50 and you get that call that you have breast cancer or you get that call. And then all of a sudden everything is put in perspective and you're like, it is about me. I am important, you know, and you don't, I mean, for you probably never felt important, Uh, you know, you didn't because you lived your whole life to take care of your parents and to take care of your siblings and to take care of every single other person except Harris. I mean, literally. So, I mean, kudos for you for getting the way you know what I mean it's like what you want to tell all those people out there look for that wake-up call like you find the wake-up call like don't let it be some tragic event that snaps you into it just know by listening to these podcasts and and learning and and talking to all these people and going to therapy and everything else that you don't need that wake-up call like it's there it's you know you just need one thing to go huh interesting and awareness that you are important. I think as well, if you're used to some kind of sustained level of misery, then actually it doesn't feel that bad. It's once you've got that big contrast to kind of really give you a kick up the butt, then you're like, oh, I see, I have a different perspective now. I also think, you know, on the compassionate side that when we've been through so much childhood trauma, there was already so much sort of abandonment, neglect, separation being let down. So it's almost like if I'm with the wrong person or I'm friends with the wrong people, 
it's not as bad as what I'm going to feel when I'm reminded of that separation. And I think once you've kind of worked on, on your, you know, healed your and processed your trauma enough, people talk about processing trauma in talking therapy and I'm like, it's not the same thing, but um, you know, they, I think by the time you've gone through that, you're like, I can actually withstand the idea of separation with these people, with this person and then by the time you do it, you're like, oh, no, my head didn't fall off. Like, right. it wasn't it wasn't pleasant. Yes, I was sad. Yes, there's grief. But actually, this is for the best. This is much better. Absolutely. That's amazing. I love the center, too. I want to look up more about the center. And I know you have a podcast coming out. So tell us a little bit about that. So I I have um, I got into podcasting at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, a friend of mine and I were exchanging very rude stories very funny stories and they said this should be a podcast I was like yeah okay and I've never done one before never even been on one so I was like I'll give it a go and um the transaction podcast was born so I did that for I think four four series uh I then dabbled a bit in it like a sort of more spiritual one and then I had a break for a while and then this year I was like you know, I started the center for childhood trauma healing and I was like, the net, there's a, there's a next podcast that's going to be born. So as we're recording this now, I'm at my friend's house. Um, I realized I was like, I don't want to do so much of my healing has led me to this place where I'm like, I don't want to do things on my own all the time anymore. Hyper independence mm-hmm. is a big uh, trauma response and I'm consciously I don't feel that way anymore I'm starting to try to cultivate more things that I'm doing with other people so I said to this friend of mine she's not public facing at all but she works she's she works in somatics that's her sort of thing and she's also a survivor same as me and I said to her I- I'm I'm thinking of um maybe doing a new podcast and I would really like a co-host who also has a lot of interest in uh, trauma and co- recovering for codependency maybe a bit of narcissism and you know proper She's healing like, and, and stuff and she was like what what do you want in a co-host <laughs> you know <laughs> she's like, I was born yes and so basically we spent all year and we're planning and we're starting filming tomorrow and it's called it's only trauma wow I mean I would watch it for sure I would listen to it for sure just from just from the title I love that thank you because it's just it's like it puts a light I mean that my sense of it's only trauma I feel like it's going to be entertaining and light and and trying to take some of the darkest deepest things and make them real just make them real and make them like you said your house was always fun that it was funny it was something I don't know, maybe, maybe that um, I could be totally off, but that just seems to me like it's going to be a, a fun podcast to listen to. Thank you. I'm glad because we were talking about it and it's something that she said and I went, oh, that's the name, that's the name. And she was like, no, no, we can't say that because people are going to hear that and be like, that's really mean. I was like, no, they won't say that. They won't, they'll get it. They'll get it. And she was like, oh, okay. And I talked her into it. So now we're doing it. it because there's so much shame and stigma behind trauma and alcoholism and abuse and, you know, just all of this stuff that comes out. And there's so many people that are just like, oh, taboo. So unless you're like right there and you sneak and listen to it, but this is like something that I feel like everybody would listen to. Like, why wouldn't, you know, I don't know. It just sounds really interesting to me. Thank you.
Yeah. So Harris, if people want to work with you or see you, talk to you, what is the best way they can get hold of you? Uh, if you go to my website, which is mxharrishill.com, uh, everything's on there. I've got all my social media links, all my freebies, all of the different resources, like everything's there. Sounds good. And I always like to ask this of everybody. I mean, you have been through absolutely so much. It's almost like, where do you touch on one thing? But if you could give the listeners out there one piece of advice or one bit of advice from Harris, words of wisdom, what would it be? If something feels unbearable to you, you are right. So if you're dealing with something, you're like, I hate this. This is unbearable. I don't know what to do about it. I I encourage you to keep looking for the right person to help you. It may not be that they can change the problem, but they might do something amazing to your brain with your consent. That means that you can handle it. So whatever it might be, there is absolutely an answer out there, a way that you can live with how things are or that you can actually change things. So just keep going, keep looking for that answer. Someone, I promise you someone will have it. Absolutely. So well said. Well, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate you coming on. I can't wait to listen to your podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Tammy. Thank you. Absolutely. And for everybody out there listening, you heard it. You heard it from the mouth of babes. There is nothing that is so unbearable that it can't be helped. It can't be fixed. It can't be healed. You just have to believe in yourself and believe that it's out there and have hope and have faith. Thank you very much. Y'all have a blessed day. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Adult Child of Dysfunction podcast. If this episode resonated with you or you think someone else could benefit from what you heard, why not share it with someone you care about? Let's heal from our past and take back control of our lives together. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to www.tammyvincent.com for a free chapter of my book, Surviving Alcoholic Parents. While you're there, be sure to catch my invigorating seminar, Awakening Your Authentic Self. Together, we will rewrite our stories and turn trials into triumphant smiles. Until next time, keep embracing your strength, keep being you, and know that you are more than enough. You are way more than enough right here, right now.